And we are back! Once again, we're on episode four. God, I, I never honestly thought we would get this far. The voyage home. Yes, the voyage the voyage to somewhere anyway. I am Steve Hester, actor and writer and all-round person. With me, as always, is... All-round being the right word for you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I am Andrew Roger Carson, but you know that because I'm the guy bugging you to come and like and listen to the show every week. And we love you for it. We do. So, yeah, if you've been in any kind of location near Andy, you will know that he really likes to publicise stuff and has been publicising the hell out of this podcast. But just in case you haven't and you've wandered into this thing completely unknown, let me just give you a heads up. You can listen to us on Spotify. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us on uh, Amazon Music. You can listen to us on Google Podcasts. You can listen to us on Deezer. And most importantly, you can also follow us on Patreon, where you can get an extended episode. This is very true. Support us on Patreon and we will give you a wave on the show. And speaking of waves, let's get into last week's What's in the Box for you, Steve. Oh, Be- that was good. Those, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm winning an Oscar for my segues. I have to applaud that one. That was really well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I write them all myself. <laughs> so, yes, last week we had What's in the Box where we had to pull out a certified fresh movie that Steve had not seen and he had to go and watch it last night, didn't you, Steve? Yes, I did. And did you watch it last night, Steve? No, I watched it this afternoon. So you've already failed What's in the Box, which is the rule is you have to watch it the night before. And I know what happened here. I reckon your girlfriend doesn't like penguins. No, she does like penguins. She's got no problem with penguins, except I wasn't actually with my girlfriend last night. I was at home, and I am currently suffering from some sort of cold and sniffle and everything, and I just wanted to just crawl into bed and die. But you didn't. No. You're here. And you're here to tell us about your thoughts on What's Up. Okay. What's Up? What's Up? up. Yeah. What's Up with Surf's Up? What's Up? What? Uh, okay, well, Surf's Up is a story about a young penguin called Cody. And Cody wants to be a champion surfer, and he's looked up to his idol, Big Z, for years, and wants to follow in his footsteps. He arrives at a surf competition after coming from Antarctica and all his family who have got no interest in him whatsoever, and uh, decides that he wants to go out and win this thing. And the actual story itself is, it's been done before. Similar story to what we've seen thousands of times. Young Hopeful wants to come and do something, looks up to an idol. The idol doesn't live up to the the legend behind it. Uh, meets the idol. The idol helps him to realise his own dreams by becoming his own person. It's happened thousands of times before, but what makes this different is that it's presented in a mockumentary style. It's all interviews and lots and lots of improvis- improvisation. Which Yes, it's the, it's the riding giants of... Penguin surfing movies. And also the the Christopher Guest movie of penguin surfing movies. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah you'll that's, give me that's that. a good comparison. Yeah. So it's got a really good cast. You've got uh, Shia LaBeouf as Cody. Shia the Beef. Shia the Beef. Uh, you've got Jeff Bridges as Big Z, who just sounds like the dude throughout the whole thing and was probably stoned when they were recording the audio. You've got Zoe Deschanel as the love interest Lanny. You've got uh, what's his name? Bill Hader. Bill, H- not Bill Hader. Uh, Bill Hader from uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Isn't that John Hader? John Hader. Yeah. Well, you've Bill got- Hader's the most successful one that people remember. Well, anyway, you've got John Hader as Joe the Chicken. See, I remember the character name more than I remember his name. Except his name is Chicken Joe. But chicken close. Joe. Oh, it's it's a chicken, and his name's Joe. What more do you want? Do you know what's more alarming is the fact that you only watched this about an hour and a half ago. I know. And yet you would have remembered it more if you'd watched it last night. But, but anyway, yeah. getting it, getting into it. Getting into it. It's Give a, us your bottom line on it. The bottom line is, it's actually a really funny film. Some really, really sneaky little adult jokes yeah. in there. Uh, like when the, the bad guy who's played by uh, the always, always ever funny Dietrich Bader, uh, Tank Evans, when he's showing off his trophies and he's polishing them all. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's all done so, so suggestively that you're kind of thinking, oh, I really do hope this does go over kids' heads. 
Is it where the mother is sh shouting through? Are you polishing your trophies again? So I'm not polishing my trophies. I'm going to polish it later, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the <sighs> and the bit where um a bit where uh, the geek pees on his uh, pees on Cody's foot to get rid of the spinefish stink. We've all been there. Yeah. I, we've, we've all done that to a friend. Had some really, really great moments. Uh, I just thought the the storyline itself was just it, it's been seen a thousand times before. It's pretty much the storyline for every well, no, I, I wouldn't say every animation, but every kind of non Disney animation. Yes, DreamWorks yeah. and Sony, every one of their films kind of follows the same pattern. Really, yeah, yeah, that's a fair enough comment. And the good news is our guest that will be coming in in a little while has also edited some very well-known animated movies as well as live action, which we will cover later. Mm -hmm. But before we do, I'm going to announce here that we are celebrating some very special anniversaries this Ooh, week. Do tell, do tell, do tell. Can you believe that Top Gun is 35 years old this week? Yes. yes and it's I been can. 35 years we've been waiting for Top Gun Maverick. Since its first trailer. I haven't actually seen Top Gun. <gasps> what's what's in the box, surely? Well, is it though? Is it certified fresh? I don't know. And if not, why not? I know. This is Tom Cruise. Surely he buys all his certified fresh. Well, I don't know. He was giving back his Golden Globes last week, so never know oh. what's up with him. Yes, well, that's, that's a conversation for another day, surely. Also, would you believe our, our series favourite, Kathy Bates... 30 years ago this week, Misery was released. Wow. Where she won her first Academy Award. The movie that kind of really discovered her, unless you remember her from that very small role in Jagged Edge. Yeah, I mean, Kathy Bates is one of these people that is just a stalwart of the industry at this point. And you cannot honestly imagine there being a point where she wasn't part of it in some way. It's very true. I reckon if we can get through one episode without Kathy Bates becoming a part of it, We'll have seriously achieved something. There'll be there'll be a weaker episode. I know. Also, twenty five years ago this week, it yep. was the release of Money Train, which was uh, the Wesley Wesley Snipes and, Wesley and uh, Woody reunion that no one really wants to remember. Uh, that I honestly thought that John Badham directed, and it wasn't. He was for it? all these years. I discovered it was, I believe, Joseph Rubin. Right. For, but for many years, I believed that. Um, John Badham had directed this movie, and he didn't. So sorry, John. I unintentionally added a movie to your slate of movies there. And uh, I think that was one of the first movies that kind of introduced us to Jennifer Lopez. But yeah, it's, it, it, it wasn't a great movie. But I'm sure it was fun to make. Nah. But also, uh, it was also the debut 20 years ago today that Dwayne The Rock Johnson graced our screens when The Mummy Returns. Oh, my God. God, yes, it will have been, wouldn't it? 20 yes. years ago, some of the worst character CGI ever created <laughs> graced the screen. Um, there's, a, there's a web series on YouTube, Corridor Digital, and the guys on there, the digital effects company, and they redid the, the shot at the end of The Mummy Returns. Still doesn't look brilliant, but by Christ, it's a damn sight better than what they did back in the day. It's just embarrassing every time I watch that movie. Do you know what? It was only beaten by, I think it was The Scorpion King 2, which is a direct-to-DVD sequel of The Rock's first solo outing. Uh, and it wasn't The Rock who was in it, obviously. No. Their end sequence, they fight an invisible scorpion and the reason why it's invisible is because they'd run out of budget and couldn't afford any effects <laughs> so they actually made this thing invisible in the plot i was like that's kind of genius that is absolutely genius and that's just knocked it up a star in my view for having the balls to actually do that so basically what you're saying is that the the mummy returns is outdone by the scorpion king too simply because that had the brass balls to be able to say no it's invisible of course is that it? come on even the asylum didn't think of that right 10 years ago this week captain jack sparrow went on stranger tides which is the probably the most forgetful pirates of the caribbean yeah because uh, i can't remember a thing about it and i know i've seen it it's a good 45 minutes too long. You know, you could tell it had nothing to do with the other ones, really. The two sequels barely had anything to do with the original, for God's sake. Uh, and it's just, 
it's just almost three hours of plodding along. I mean, people say that Lord of the Rings, they spend all their time walking, but at least they're trying to get somewhere. (laughs) In this, it's just... The only highlight of this movie, realistically, is um, Ian McShane just chewing up the scenery as Blackbird. I'd forgotten he was in it as well. Yeah. Should I go and revisit this? Uh, It's not really worth it, really. Uh, Okay. So there's always one guest that I've always wanted to have on. I know I say that every single time we have a guest on, but this is someone that I really, really wanted to get on. It is Gillian Hutching. And if you don't know who Gillian Hutching is, you just don't know what good movies are. Because Gillian Hutching, she is an established film editor with over 60 titles to her credit. Now, her projects, uh, they've ranged from feature films, documentaries, television. She's worked for all the award-winning directors of note, including Sir Ridley Scott, on Blade Runner, the final cut, which obviously we are going to talk about. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, ben Affleck on The Town, which is a, an amazing film. Uh, Peter Weir on Dead Poets Society. And even Kevin Costner on The Postman. She recently collaborated with Amy Poehler also. And just to give her a little bit of a background before we bring her in here, uh, Gillian got her start in the film industry as the apprentice editor on a John Cassavetti short film. <laughs> that, to me is just one of the most amazing things that I found out about her recently. Uh, She's climbed the ranks in Hollywood uh, to not only become a lead editor, but she's developed this amazing reputation in Hollywood as a film doctor. So she's transforming these troubled projects into award-winning films. Uh, She's joining us all the way from Los Angeles, probably a nice or smoky morning, depending on if there's any fires going on there this morning. Gillian, are you there? How are you doing? I'm here. Hey. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Steve. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invite. Oh, no. We're glad to have you here. To be honest, I'm glad you're still here after our intro. (laughs) (laughs) It was very funny. Thank you. Uh, Yes. Speaking of Smokey, when I went out to the car to try and get uh, headphones for the session, there was ash on my car. So I don't know where that came from. I didn't hear about a fire, but to your point. There must have been one. Yeah, there's, I think I saw somebody on Facebook earlier in L.A. had posted there is some fires up in the hills. They, they usually is, though. Every time I talk with our good friend Bill Daly, there's usually a fire going on somewhere. He probably starts them, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Bill will be the first person to admit he started a fire or two. <laughs> so, brothers. <laughs> over at Warner Brothers, and I know, uh, Gillian, you have a lot of experience over at Warner Brothers as well. Um, I just wanted to cover briefly, you are a third-generation editor also. Yes, yes. Your grandfather, Howard Bretherington, uh, and I'd known of this name for quite a while because he was a director on a lot of the Golden Age Westerns that you used to see on Channel 4 here in the UK in the afternoon, usually after Sesame Street, if you can believe that. That's how far back my memory goes but your grandfather uh, directed uh, these westerns that had stars like Buck Jones uh, Wild Bill Elliott he also directed some of the uh, Charlie Chan movies uh, the Frankie Darrow pictures back in the day wow I know that, that that was quite amazing because I love my history of older movies and then I was blown away by discovering that your uncle David Bretherton uh, was a very established Hollywood editor who had edited Cabaret and um, Vincent Minnelli's On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. And trust me, being an editor on a Vincent Minnelli movie must must have been an experience. Uh, the Al Pacino movie, Sea of Love. And more importantly than all of that, to me especially, he was the editor on the original Yul Brenner movie, Westworld. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, just... he was a, also known as a film doctor in Hollywood uh, because... He just had this ability to uh, use sort of sleight of hand with his editing and uh, sort of distract you from the problems and move the plot along in really fascinating ways. Yeah, he got the Academy Award for Cabaret. I think that was his idea to do the intercutting between the Nazis and the, the dancing on stage. And he also told me that he didn't always use the best performances because they were cabaret stars. So... He figured they wouldn't always be exactly perfect, so 
he included some foibles in there on purpose to make them relatable too, you know? Yeah, definitely. So obviously this is weaved into your DNA now. So is that where your love has always come from, from these, these kind of classic movies? Did you instantly feel a connection? with editing? Well, when I was a kid, I always loved to record things and cut them, you know, in a very rudimentary way. And then I went to college for English and mass communications. Uh, and then actually I had a friend who lived in Los Angeles and I was visiting one summer. And that's my friend who was assisting on uh, the John Cassavetes short. And uh, he said, why don't you come see what I do? And I said, oh, great. And so, I the the editor said you know back in the film days you always needed more hands in the cutting room so they said would you like to help out as our apprentice and I said boy would I and so <laughs> so I did that for the length of the project and then the editor said you know well we can't pay you but we can give you a credit and I thought a credit like that's that's better than money because I can start building a resume because by the time that that film was over, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I wasn't even that interested in graduating after that, you know. So I, I just, uh, when I got out of school, I moved back to San Diego where I grew up and took two jobs, bought a Honda, moved up and lived on people's couches and just started working my way up till I got in the union and uh, just uh, always tried to work with the best people I could find because I was always thirsty for knowledge and fascinated by, by people's process. You know, I was telling you, Andrew, that, yeah. you know, a lot of these great directors, they have such different process. You know, they're all making a movie, but the way each director goes about it is so radically different from how they treat the crew to how they prepare and shoot and work with actors and are in the cutting room. It's, it fascinates me. On IMDb, one of the projects that you've got down as, uh, as an editor is Little Shop of Horrors. That movie has, uh, well, first of all, it had the, the original Roger Corman version, which was about 1960, which had Jack Nicholson in it, famously filmed over about two days. Um, this one obviously was a much longer process. Uh, Frank Oz directed this one, and there was a complete change around. It was a complete one hundred and eighty in the ending. Yes. How much work actually went into getting that original ending done, and how much disappointment was there when you got told, "No, it's all coming out, and we're having to put this in instead"? Well, actually, it's sort of the other way around. I brought it back to Frank Oz's original vision in 2012. So I worked on the unhappy ending, which was restoring Frank Oz's original vision. And I worked again with David Geffen and Warner Brothers. So what had happened was, you know, they shot the film and they had, God, I can't remember if it was $4 million at the time, which at the time was a huge amount of money for all the the uh, puppets and the special effects and all that. And they screened the movie and the audiences loved the characters so much that they practically mutinied <laughs> over, <laughs> over everyone dying. And it was like, absolutely not. <laughs> we will not have these lead characters all die, no. So I, I heard an interview with Bill Murray saying that everyone involved in the movie was just heartbroken and didn't really even want to go on if, if it wasn't going to go out the way they intended. But, you know, commerce is king. And so they shot the new ending. Uh, it was Paul Dooley in the role that was uh, Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi and Paul mm -hmm. Dooley swapped yes. roles yeah. of the salesman. So what I had to do was just, I was like a detective. I had to find find all the old footage and hope there was old completed footage because a lot of it was extremely stylized for the unhappy ending. And so I didn't know for sure how much of it I would find or not find. And the original editor had passed away. So I, uh, okay, you're going to cut this out. It's going to sound crazy, but <laughs> <laughs> My ex-ex had these friends that 
could uh, they could channel supposedly people from beyond, and I couldn't find the footage that I needed, and I also wanted to have the blessing of the original people involved, you know, and I had David Geffen's blessing and I had Frank Oz's blessing, but, you know, I was going to be recutting, I forget the original editor's name, um, but, you know, I wanted his blessing as well. So anyway, I had this guy channel this editor and find out if he was happy with what I was doing, confident in me, and if he could help me find the footage I wanted. <laughs> and he actually said, you know, it's going to be difficult, but you're going to find everything you need. And he was like over the moon about it. So, you know, whether that's a bunch of hokum or is true, it certainly made me feel better about things. And it actually came to pass that I would just stumble onto things that were just incredible so by hook or by crook, I ended up in probably about six or seven months uh, putting the whole thing together. And then Frank Oz was in England. I think he was doing a play. We had David Geffen come in. He was at the mix. He signed off on it, but then we needed Frank Oz. And when Frank came in, he said straight up to my boss at Warner's, he said, look, I've been wanting this version for a really long time and I'm going to watch it. But if I'm not happy with all of it, it it's, it's not happening. I'm going to, I'm going to just say no. And so we were like, go, okay. So no pressure then. <laughs> Lights out. <laughs> and uh, he loved it so much. He wanted to, he, and I think he came with his wife and uh, he said, can I watch it again? like right away. So he finished it and then wanted to watch it straight away again and said, I love it. This is exactly what we intended. So that was really, really cool. Uh, it is an amazing, I actually prefer the director's cut of it. And uh, I, I really do enjoy when movies kind of get to go back uh, mm -hmm. to that original vision. And you being the film doctor, you've probably worked on the movie that is considered the Bible of modern cinema. Yeah. And of course, we, we've got to refer here to Ridley Scott's full vision of Blade Runner, which is the Blade Runner final cut. I can just imagine being approached to do this. Uh, I can't imagine, well, I think every editor would love the gig, but I think it would come with a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously it's got to take a, a toll on how big an undertaking that kind of project is if it's going to be the final ever version of that movie. Yes, definitely. You know, Ridley had a long list of names to sort through and uh, luckily he chose me. Yeah, um, I, uh, I didn't take the undertaking lightly and I was damn sure I wasn't going to be the person that Blade Runner, you know, for the fans, because those <laughs> fans are crazy. You know what I mean? And so many of these director's cuts that come out, you know, they're, they're an interesting exercise for the filmmakers or whoever's involved, but the fans, for the most part, hate them because they fall in love with the version that they originally saw, usually. So uh, I think maybe only, was it Blood Simple that the Coen brothers, they recut it? They actually, yes. actually shortened it. And he was like, the only director's cut in history that's shorter than the original. You know, and again, done by and approved by the original filmmakers. And that makes a huge difference. And so, you know, I had a list of things that Ridley had always been displeased with or things that he had wanted to do and wasn't able to do. And, you know, he was new-ish in town. You know, he was more well-known for his commercial work. Yeah. You know, he was new to Los Angeles. I believe this was his first film in Hollywood and he was not treated nicely. He was not particularly respected. There's a story where, you know, one of the exec producers was like, you know, why does he keep shooting this so many times? You know, a shadow. Well, if my grandkids are worried about a shadow, then we don't have a movie. And it's like, <laughs> You know, oh, God, for an auteur, that must be torture. 
to have someone that's just like, come on, let's get it, keep it moving. (laughs) You know, obviously it was a, a thrill to work with him and to learn some, you know, have him give me little tidbits along the way of, of how he thinks about filmmaking and his preferences and being able to please him and work together well was you know, just something I'll, I'll never forget. Famously, there was the Blade Runner's quote-unquote director's cut, which came out in the, the early 90s. A lot of the stuff that uh, that has been flown around, the different versions, has kind of popped up in one, but then not in another. So was there, right. was there anything specific that Ridley just came up to you and said, look, I really want you to put this in, or I really want you to get rid of that? You know, Ridley is not precious with his material. It's fascinating. You know, I mean, he's the first person to say, you know, is that a bit slow? (laughs) You know, maybe we should we nibble about, as he calls it. (laughs) And uh, twice I said, no, I don't think so. I think we let this moment do what it does, baby. Um, (laughs) But uh, yes, we picked and chose from the different versions things to go back in. And then I did tweak here and there. But, you know, the sign of good editing is, I think, when people see something and they say, oh, yeah, that moves great. I, I can't tell what you changed, but but it seems to move better. Or it seems to you know show this emotion better or do that better. But they can't tell what you did. That's the biggest compliment I can get when I'm fixing something. Obviously, there's a, there's a huge change in the color grade that I've noticed. Yes. So there's a lot of work that went into the color grade. And I think the, Thank you. the yes. biggest change... Oh, no, no, I... I've spoken about this before with you. I absolutely love it. You know how much I worship Blade Runner as probably my Bible of of filmmaking. It really is the movie that made me want to get into the business and and write and direct. I think, obviously, the the biggest change here is the window-smashing scene now is Joanna Cassidy and not someone who looks like Silver Black Drag Queen. Yeah, Yeah, it was a guy in an afro previously. (laughs) And it's genius. There's going to be a whole bunch of people from this generation kind of onwards now that will never see that older version and kind right, of because, what we had to witness. <laughs> yes, because Ridley has sort of said, this is the only version I want to see playing around anywhere. You know and, what I mean? And rightly he so. He said it's the, it's the only one you'll ever need. Yeah, and to your color grade comment, you know, the director's cut was just god-awful. I mean, the whole thing was brown. Yeah. And exactly. like the elevator yeah. scenes are sort of a purpley blue and LAI works is really blue. The different moods and that room with all the dolls is is like a strawberry pink. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just gorgeous when you see it really come to life the way it was shot and intended to be. It does. It looks absolutely incredible. Uh, it was among the first things that I really bought on Blu-ray because I I could not wait to sit down and actually see you know, this final cut of it. I mean, I even went to the cinemas to see the final cut. Just reiterating, Blade Runner is one of kind of my earliest memories when it comes to film. As, you know, no doubt Steve will kind of share this with me. Uh, Way back in the 80s, when your parents would get their first, like, VHS, they would tape absolutely anything off TV Uh (laughs) and use that same tape over and over for something else. Now... I had this VHS tape, which I believe I still got. This is how much I loved this VHS tape that uh, originally had Blade Runner on it, but it obviously had stuff taped over it. I think it was the pilot episode for Street Hawk, if you can believe that. Oh, God. Then at the end of that, it would fade down and you'll get whatever was on it before. And I believe it was the John Borman film, The Emerald Forest, if you ever remember that. Steve, I know you've not seen it. And then that would fade out. You'd get the end fight from any which way you can. (laughs) Right? And then when that ends, suddenly the end of Blade Runner, the entire Bradley building ending was on it. And that was the, the first The tears and rain or the yeah. fight? The, all of the chase at the end. Mm. And then that real, real five. Uh-huh. Yeah. So real <laughs> five was at the end of this tape. Right. And that was my first exposure to Blade Runner. I'd only seen the ending of it for many years until I actually saw you know the full film and put it on VHS. And I absolutely fell in love with just real five of this movie. I mean, we were introduced last year by Bill, and I was so nervous meeting you because I knew that you had basically corrected my favorite movie of all time. And I was sat there thinking, I don't know how I can talk 
to this person. I'm sitting there as a writer director on a project and here I have Gillian Hutching who has basically worked on my Bible, you know, the movie that made me want to get into writing and directing. So I don't think we spoke about it for a good couple of months before we actually started talking about Blade Runner until I was really comfortable in asking. But um, it, it really is just a phenomenal job that was done on that movie that, you know, just to credit you with. And, uh, you know, it's, it is an outstanding. Anyone who has not seen Blade Runner, what are you doing listening to this podcast? Turn it off and go and watch it and then come back and listen to the rest of it. Well, Gillian, we could definitely talk about your extensive career all day. We are in limited time, but we definitely are going to have you back, if you will have us, obviously. But hopefully. Hopefully. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to see quite a lot of you anyway and talk to you as I do every single week. But now is the time to nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. I just think if Gillian had never heard that music before, I doubt she's still here. <laughs> I loved it. That Are you keeps kidding? Amusing me. <laughs> that that is, of Did course, our awesome. That, Steve? No, 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 that is Neil Pretty all the way through. He was on oh. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he is our music man who has done all of our theme music. Absolutely incredible every single time. And it still makes us laugh four it weeks It does. In. I still find it really amusing. Although, having said that, we've also got What's in the Box to come up later as well, which that's also oh. got its own stink. <laughs> the, the reason why we leave that till last. Anyway. No, it's good. It's, it, it adds uh, energy. So, yes. That is our theme of Nominate 5, which ropes us in every week for our guest to nominate five in a specific category. And we have asked Gillian, being the film doctor and very well-established editor, to pick her, well, to nominate her five best movie edits. So starting down from five to one, even though it never works out that way. No, they're never in order. Ever. No, it's the most dyslexic countdown <laughs> you will ever hear because we go from five, four, two, one, three, <laughs> whatever. But let, let's try our best. Maybe we can get it right this week. Maybe we can get it right this week. So, Gillian, can you please yes. give us number five on your countdown? All right, Young Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, love that movie. We, we love that movie. I suppose the dinner scene, or no, 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 you know what? Young Frankenstein and the scene that I like is when they're trying to move the bookcase. <laughs> Classic. Put the candle back. So funny. That's still my all-time favorite comedy, I think. <laughs> Sorry, all I'm thinking of right now is just blucher. <laughs> yeah, Frau Blucher. <laughs> God bless it. Did we lose her last year, Cloris Leachman? I think it was this year, actually. Yeah. Was it this year? I think so, yeah. That's how bad this past year has been. We've, we've just, everything's kind of just gelled together. Yeah. What's it all for? What's number four? Uh, Goodfellas. Ooh. I Beautiful. love the part of the movie where he's being chased by the helicopters. And yes. my favorite edit almost looks like like something that directors and editors do in the cutting room where they're they're saying do we use this angle or this angle he's in the kitchen ray liotta who i love uh he's in the kitchen and he's stressed for time right and he's trying to figure out when he's going to leave and he's got to cook the spaghetti and then do this and do this and he looks in a medium and then he looks in a close and it's such a satisfying couple of cuts and it, it's illogical that you cut to it twice and it almost looks like I say like like what editors do in the cutting room with the director where they go you know which do you prefer for this moment the close-up or the medium and they go well it looks cool with them both let's leave it like that so I, I just love that because it it makes me wonder like how'd they come up with that that is it's a fabulous choice. Steve, have you seen Goodfellas? 
So what's your number three? <laughs> a terrible answer. You are. And uh, Pulp Fiction. What a movie. Love Pulp Fiction. I love the scene where they're trying to bring Uma Thurman back to life. Mm. And everybody's stressed yes. out and talking over each other. And I think it's all done in handheld and seems very organic. You know, yeah, it doesn't it, seem super stagey or anything. It's very chaotic and immediate yeah. and great. I was just wanting to interject there with uh, the whole Pulp Fiction. I seem to remember that that scene, a lot of it was shot from floor level as well, from Uma Thurman's kind of level. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of that was one shot. And there's definitely a yes. conversation we need to have one day about kind of difficulty of those uh, Robert Altman type scenes where people just constantly talk over each other and how that must play havoc on sound mixing well i think it's less havoc if it's good actors well there you go all you terrible actors now you know why your scenes aren't in the movie <laughs> no but really it's like if everybody is at the top of their game then there's there's not a problem fully in agreement on mm -hmm. that the other thing i love about that movie is when they go to the diner and yeah. uma thurman says to um travolta. john travolta don't be a square and that blue thing <laughs> yeah, goes ding, 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 ding. because I'm always getting in conversations with directors sometimes that say, if we do, we can't just do that, whatever it is I want to do. We can't just do that once. We have to, we have to do it at least three times in the movie if we do it. And I say, why, you know, why, if it, I mean, it, it works right now. Why, why are we committed to like a marriage? You know what I mean? And those two movies, prove that you don't you just you just do what you want it's art exactly let's go down to number two uh dangerous liaisons very good choice with glenn close and john malkovich it's really a shot that just blows my mind john malkovich is trying to seduce michelle pfeiffer's character right this upstanding woman very moral very religious and it's this mental chess cat and mouse game he has with Glenn Close through the whole movie. And it's all supposed to be sort of a, you know, a sexual game they play with other people in their lives. They're all standing together at this musical event and Michelle Pfeiffer comes in and takes a seat. John Malkovich looks over and looks at her and then looks back and Glenn Close looks at John Malkovich and you see just in this one shot, Glenn Close's face so, so subtly changes as she realizes just in her eyes that he really is in love with Michelle Pfeiffer. And it's beyond subtle. And the whole plot pivots on that one look. And I don't know how they built to it. I don't know how it even works. But that if you could get an Oscar for one cut, I don't know who deserves it, the editor, the director, or Glenn Close, but <laughs> maybe all three. It is a fabulous movie as well. Um, uh, it always annoys me when people say, oh, you know, Cruel Intentions is this, you know, Ugh. really original story. It's like, it's you have not. no idea this movie exists. It really isn't. Right. Really isn't. And that dying scene, I've never seen such a great dying scene. Makes me cry every time. So, okay, then, uh, what is the number one pick? Aaron Brockovich. And Ooh, uh, okay. I just love the way that the director, the director cuts his own movies. And like the Coen brothers, there's a, there's something about the economy of editing when a director cuts his own movies. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh is, uh, he has such a different identity for every single one of his movies, but you can tell within the edits uh, and he's very patient with his edits as well. You know, it's it's not your classic Michael Bay style, one every three seconds. Oh God, I think it's less than that. It's like every, every one and a half to two seconds, it's ridiculous. And yet it's almost the transitions that like blow my mind in his films. Like if you see Aaron Brockovich, the, the transitions are very impactful. And I, when I was first starting out, I had, a, had, a, had an editor tell me that transitions can be almost more important than what you do within the scene. And I never fully understood it, but I know that transitions are crucially important. I think it's all important personally, but... Mm. Gillian, that is an absolutely outstanding nominate five. 
And I'm pretty sure Steve may have even seen one or two of them. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> As in, yes, he may have. <laughs> well, I've definitely, definitely seen Pulp Fiction. Gillian, absolutely yes. fantastic. Nominate five there. Uh, there's definitely some stuff for all of our film fans out there. All of our Pottywood uh, acolytes uh, can go out there, find these movies. But there's even better food for thought in your little project that I have seen straight from its kind of inception here. And that is Gilly Can Cook. Yes. And I have had two of your recipes. <gasps> Which ones? Well, I know you've been dying to find out what I've been cooking over the weekend. I thought yes. I've, I've got to sample this food. And I did write a review for your website and your blogs. Thank you. Uh, on what was it? Saturday night, I made the best carb salad ever. Okay. Okay. What what is carb salad? Well, would you believe that carb salad was? Uh, oh, you know, I'm totally going to fail here because I actually read the write up on Gillian's uh, blog in regards to the best carb salad ever, and there was even a little bit of history about where the term carb salad came from. I love um, to write histories with my recipes. Exactly. Food for thought, or thought for food, even. Uh, a cup salad is basically what it is. It's a salad. Now, when making it, I was a little bit dubious because I'm touch or go with egg. What did you do? Just double up on bacon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I actually did have the egg. I, oh. I, I did have the egg. Uh, I included it in, and it was absolutely fabulous. I loved it. So I came back on Sunday night. I thought, I am going to throw my love of cooking into another dish here. And I made the linguine with shrimp scampi. Oh, and? Oh, I've got to say, anything with black pepper and red pepper flakes in it, yes. uh, I'm instantly going to love and I thought, okay, scampi. Uh, I've not had scampi in a long time, but I think I'm going to love this. Uh, and it was delicious. Oh, my God. Absolutely incredible. And I love the way that your instructions are so easy to follow that anyone who is just bored having the regular mundane foods that you just create really quickly, uh, these recipes that Gillian's really worked on, they're so accurately spelled out. It is something that you have a lot of fun actually making. But I'm not here to sell Gillikin Cook. Gilly is here to sell Gilly Can Cook. Oh, Tell us about mean, it, Gilly. That means the world to me, Andrew, because that's sort of where I'm coming from because I love to cook. I love good food. And, you know, nobody, especially when you're working, has hours and hours to devote to complicated dishes, but you want it to taste luxurious even though you didn't spend three hours cooking it. Part of how I... Right, I am always changing recipes, or I'll take, I'll take something I like, but I don't like this about this recipe, and I don't like that about that recipe. And so, you know, like my chicken cocoa van that I just posted last week, I think that's eight different recipes that I picked and chose how I wanted to uh, to build it, and um, I did it in one pot. A lot of recipes, what used to frustrate me is that I would start cooking a recipe and halfway down the recipe, I would realize in the instructions, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I started, I was supposed to combine the dry ingredients. I'm already like, I'm already 10 minutes past that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that, that ship has sailed. So now I've, you're telling me I've, I've ruined the meal. You know what I mean? So, so I'm very conscious of, of uh, when you say they're easy to read, that's great because that's how I want to read a menu. I, I want to I be cooking it while I'm reading down. And so I, I don't need any curveballs telling me something I should have done way up at the top of the recipe. No, it, it is fabulous. And people can find it at gillycancook.com. Yeah, pretty easy. Uh, Yes, you can also find it on Facebook. It does have a page. We will put a link to Gillikin Cook on this episode also mm -hmm. so that people yes, can will. find it, try out these recipes. I know Steve never really trusts anything to do with food that I tell him because once I told him about this fantastic mixed kebab from Kebabalicious that <laughs> nearly killed him. Yeah, it was. Kebabalicious. Well, 
It, it was basically, it was a mixed meat kebab in um, in a naan bread, and while it was very nice, it could have also been used to club baby seals to death with. <laughs> it, it is the heaviest huge. kebab. <laughs> well, mixed meat, that ought to give you a little concern right there. Yes, it was Noah's Ark in a pit Scraps. Of I yeah. call that scraps. <laughs> there may have been some alcohol beforehand. That's, um, that's all I'm going to say on the matter. That's we, what we saved were com- you. We were <laughs> yeah. coming back from the premiere of your uh, movie. You took me to your movie premiere, Steve. And, oh, uh, God, yes. Driving back, like, we need to get something to eat from somewhere. Cause, to uh, take the taste of the film out of our mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great for the, the two scenes that you were in. Yeah. That I got edited out of, but never mind. <laughs> oh, and yeah. And didn't well. get paid for. But that's, Wait, uh, you were in two scenes, or you... Or not? No, I was. I was in. Um, I was in a movie, and uh, it was a little low-budget British movie. And then um, my my part got changed from like a proper speaking role to like a more kind of supporting supporting role, really. And uh, and then never got paid for the whole thing in the end, which uh, I wasn't the only one. So there's probably not an awful lot that I can talk about with that one either. Oh, well, we we all know them type nah. of people. But we're not going to go into that today. No. So tell me, Gillian, how exactly did you and Andy meet? We met through a mutual friend that we have mentioned several times, Bill Daly, who I worked with at Warner Brothers and is now working with Andrew on his beautiful script, Deeper Than Six Feet. So Bill and Andrew set up a meeting and we had lunch and discussed it and the rest is history. So, deeper than six feet, that sounds like a grave. And what goes into a grave? A coffin. And what happens in a coffin? Well, people ask, what's in the box? 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 Steve, I absolutely hate you. (laughs) I absolutely hate you for that segue. (laughs) It's a good job we've got an editor here because I'm going to ask her to cut you out of this. (laughs) Gillian's already left. I I love that theme music, by the way. Well, you you guys have this down to a, a science already, so I don't know when I'm supposed to speak and not speak. I don't want to talk over anybody. Well, we we just wait for Steve to finish laughing, so we okay, could be here I'm quite done. a while. I'm done. Well, yes, now it is time for our weekly segment, What's in the Box? Now, What's in the Box has got nothing to do with coffins or Gwyneth Paltrow's head, but one thing that it does have to do with is movies, namely movies that I haven't seen. Uh, sorry, I'm still <laughs> laughing at that theme music. Okay, well, just to let you know, the rules are... That yes. one, it has to be certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes. And two, if I have seen it, then another one has to be picked out until we find one that I haven't seen. That's the pressure. Okay. Your What's in the Box recommendation. Michael Winterbottom's 2007 biopic. Uh, not of himself, obviously. Uh, A Mighty Heart, which stars Angelina Jolie. What's yours about, Andrew? Uh, it's well. It's a true story of Angelina Jolie uh, plays Marianne uh, somebody. I've already forgotten the surname, but basically, her husband is, I believe, it, he's like a, a political correspondent or something in Pakistan, and it happens the day after or two days after nine eleven, and he ends up getting kidnapped and obviously uh, held for Ransom, and it's all about Angelina Jolie's character of Marianne uh, uh, on the negotiations. (laughs) Yes, yes, her. And it's to uh, basically uh, get him freed, and it's a true story, and uh, it won't go in a direction you're probably expecting it to go, but you'll enjoy it. (laughs) I want to say a big, big thank you to Gillian for joining us and putting up with all of our stupidity. Oh, it was a pleasure. 
we definitely need to have you back on at some point down the line because there was just way too much career to cover. Oh, there's uh, so much more that we want to go into. We didn't even mention Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. We needed this conversation of how Avatar just completely ripped you off. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yet again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week. You can find us on all the usual Hangouts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, all the rest of them. And, of course, on patreon.com forward slash Pottywood. Right. And just to plug, it's Gilly Can Cook on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and my blog. And they are fabulous foods, so go and check them out. Thank you. I'm so I'm so flattered that you actually made those recipes. That's really sweet. Thank you. And I'm really flattered I didn't screw them up. So thank you very much. And we will catch you next week. Say goodbye, Steve. Goodbye, Steve. Goodbye, Gillian. Uh, goodbye, whoever else. <laughs> I don't even know my own name. Say uh, it, Andrew. Goodbye, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are nuts. Good, good, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> good right. Goodbye, Idris. Goodbye, Moon. <laughs> goodbye, House. <laughs> goodbye, Donkey in the Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and goodbye our viewership oh, goodbye, play the goddamn music let's get out of here <laughs>